Hey, Cole, are you ready to get into some hard-hitting issues here on Second to Die? I feel like we do that occasionally. Yeah, well, this week, I'm tackling the question, is it really stalking if the guy is hot? Oh, boy. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And this week, everybody, well, so Valentine's Day is coming up. I guess I should put that in there. And so I thought that I would try to do a Valentine's Day movie. Is it tomorrow? Yes, it's tomorrow. So I'm doing a Valentine's Day movie. And originally, and I, I know I told you this already, but originally I was going to just do My Bloody Valentine, which is a 1981 film. It's a horror classic. Remade in, in, remade in 2009, but whatever. But I thought that was too obvious, so I didn't do it. And in retrospect, I don't know if I made a good decision because I know that movie is good. And this movie I thought was going to be okay, but it wasn't great. So as people may have known from the title, or maybe not because it's not like a well-known movie. I'm doing a 2019 movie called Down. I also just realized that this is 2019, so technically I am not supposed to give away the ending as per my own rules. We'll see if I do that or not. It's part of the Into the Dark series, which is where I got my Thanksgiving movie from, the Pilgrims movie. If you're more interested, if you're interested in hearing more about that, then just go listen to the Pilgrims episode. I'm not going to talk more about that series, but I liked Pilgrims so much that I thought maybe I'll give this one a shot, even though I read a review that said this is the worst in the series. I decided to give it a go. And actually, Bloody Disgusting said this movie was okay. And I agree, this movie is very, very okay. Oh boy. So, I'm just going to jump right into it. There's not a lot of backstory because it's a modern movie, and so there's not there's not enough time to build up like cool, quirky trivia. And I know you have a lot to talk about, so. I do. I have so much to talk about for mine. <laughs> okay. So, the basic premise of this movie is two people who get caught in an elevator. I'll just point that out. That's why it's called Down. The poster for it is like bloody elevator buttons. Okay, I'm on board. I've gotten trapped in an elevator before. Have you really? Yeah. So after Hurricane Ivan, which hit the it hit um like Alabama and the Panhandle of Florida the year before Hurricane Katrina hit here, the condominium that my family owns property in was getting renovated and it had like just gotten power back and we were kind of making a visit as the renovation plans were starting. And we didn't realize that the elevator was being tricky. And I was in the elevator, I think, heading down to the first floor for something. And I got trapped in it. By yourself? Yeah. Thankfully, I had my cell phone. So I just called my mom. And they were able to call the property manager. And he had, you know how elevators have that little hole on the outside door? You may not have noticed, but basically every elevator has a hole on one of the outside doors. That's actually a keyhole. Mm -hmm. And he had the key, so he was able to, like, force it open. It did take him, like, 15 minutes to get there. Like, I was just chilling in an elevator for 15 minutes, but you Mm -hmm. are fully aware of how close I am to my mother. She and I just talked on the phone for 15 minutes (laughs) uh, while I waited. (laughs) My mom and I are super close. We... 
talk every week and have a tendency to talk for multiple hours at a time. Yeah, I don't think I would like that very much. I'm I'm not like that kind of claustrophobic. Like an elevator would be enough space that I wouldn't completely freak out, but I still don't think I would enjoy the experience. I don't remember being super freaked out. Like as soon as a solution was being worked on, I definitely didn't care. I don't know. I've always been a little bit nihilistic. Hmm. I also got stuck in an elevator at work. Um, for it, it was malfunctioning briefly and wouldn't open on the attic floor where my office is. And hmm. so it went up there and just stopped and wouldn't open. So I just hit the second floor and it went back down and opened. It wasn't like a huge thing. I say stuck. It just wouldn't open on the right floor. And I was like, oh, this is weird. And I just started pushing buttons and it worked. I've been in some shaky elevators before, but I've never had one like full out stop. And well, and I was actually just thinking now my office building doesn't have an elevator, so I would never run into that. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. So that's the basic premise of this movie. I'll point out the movie starts as I always like to, to begin my segments with. We open up on a nice big dark shaft, an elevator shaft, and there's flashes of what looks kind of like this like crashed elevator car or something. You don't really know what's going on, but there's like blood on the elevator and there's like debris and shit like that. I'm picturing like sparks flashes lighting things up. Kind of like that, except it's not, it's very dimly lit. Yeah. It's it's like emergency lighting. Okay. I'm on board. And then, but then it just like cuts away to an office building and it's like very clear that the intention is to show you like this is the end and now we're going to go back and show you how we got here and I hate that bullshit also it has no place in a movie like this because it doesn't there's no like twist like it shows you this crashed elevator you already know the movie is about people getting stuck in an elevator so I don't know it's like this doesn't tell you anything interesting and I hated it so I was already a little bit annoyed at this movie okay so then we go to an office, and there's this girl, Jennifer. She's played by Natalie Martinez. She's writing... You basically see her writing an email to her boyfriend, Derek. She's the last person in the office on her floor. And she gets into the elevator, starts to go down. A couple floors down, there's this guy named... Well, his name is Guy, and which is a real name. I'll give it that, but it's very confusing for when you narrate things. A guy named Guy. He's played by the wonderfully attractive Matt Lauria, who looked kind of familiar to me and I looked him up and I actually really don't think I've seen anything that he's in but he's been in a lot of episodes of different tv shows and is in this show called kingdom which I've not watched but he looks like smoking hot in it he's got like lots of tattoos and shit hold on what's his name I'm gonna google him Matt Lauria L-A-U-R-I-A oh oh okay daddy yeah and I mean when I say he's hot I do mean hot in kind of a very standard typical boring white guy kind of a way but Enough to get you there for sure. And in some of the shows, he's a lot scruffier and tattooed and looks look good. He looks good. Yeah. No, I'm on board. 10 out of 10 would ride that ride. <laughs> so, okay. So he jumps onto the elevator a couple floors down. And they're going down. And, oh, also, it's Valentine's Day. This is another thing about this movie. This is the Valentine's Day selection because all of these Into the Dark movies sort of focus on a holiday. And you, you know this because when they show the offices, there's, like, happy Valentine's Day decorations. And this is supposed to be, like, a big, like, big business firm, I'm assuming, like, New York-style office. 
And I'm like, that is an office, not a middle school classroom. There's no way that there's Happy Valentine's Day bullshit all over this place. I literally was about to be like, hey, we decorate my work for Valentine's Day. And then I was like, oh, yeah, you're a children's librarian, Cole. That's why we do that. Yes. I've worked in many an office setting and no one I work with has ever put Valentine's Day decorations up. I've seen people give like candy to other people or like replace their like silver Hershey's kisses with the red Hershey's kisses. But like office settings just don't do that. Like not Valentine's Day. We, we, (laughs) this is so funny because I don't think she listens to this, but, um, my assistant, she always has like a Christmas setting. I don't think I've even told you this, even though you've been in this office, she always has like a Christmas setting up on the file cabinet. It's like fake snow and like a Christmas tree. I don't think that ever disappears. Like year round. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm thinking about it. It's either that or it's like, for many, many months. I love your assistant so <laughs> she's, much. I mean, she's literally the best. First of all, she's an amazing assistant. Yeah. Like, absolutely incredible. She's so good at her job. But she's also just one of the genuinely sweetest people I've ever met in my entire life. Like, she's just really nice. Yeah, she is fantastic. I mean, I literally could not do my job without her. And she helped me, which is why I try to be really nice to her. She also came to our wedding, which was great. She did. Okay, so that's that. So then, of course, they get into the elevator and start to go down. And they're going down to, like, the subterranean parking floors. And the elevator, of course, stops. Obviously. Obviously. They try to hit the alarm buttons to the elevator, but, like, none of the alarm buttons are working or anything like that. So then they're just kind of sitting there and, like, chit-chatting. And I'll point out that the person who plays Jennifer, she's also very, very pretty. So, of course, it's, like, to attract people stuck in an elevator. What could possibly go wrong? I know. Right. So, very quickly, this movie addresses something that every time... I've seen this concept done a few times. The one that comes to mind just right now is the movie Devil, which is a bunch of people trapped in an elevator, and one of them is the devil, but you don't know who. Uh, That movie... Actually, people hated that movie. I thought it was okay. But uh, this movie addressed an issue that I've always had with the whole, like, shtick of people getting trapped in elevators, which is, what happens if you have to, like, pee or something? Because very quickly, Jennifer's like, I have to pee. And it's kind of this, like, weird scene where she's going to and he's all, like, just do it. I'll turn around. And she's, like, embarrassed by it. And long story short, she ends up peeing in a thermos. It's not that interesting. But for the fact that at least they addressed that. That's nice. I do, like, a touch of realism with my horror. However. Oh, God. Like, two days go by. And none of them have to, like, well, I say two days. It's Friday night when they get in. And the end of the movie, I believe, is Sunday Oh, it's early Sunday. So it's basically like one and a half days. All Saturday. 36 hours. Yes. And I don't know how else to put it other than like none of them have to like drop the kids off at the pool. Which seems like either they're not getting enough fiber in their diet or maybe it's like a stress reaction. But they really should probably supplement something. You need to eat a banana. Also, slightly unbelievable, New York City is a very, like, workaholic city, and the fact that no one went into work in this entire office building all day on Saturday, mm. Yeah, actually, it was really funny, because they also said something about how, like, nobody's going to come find them until Tuesday, because of, like, I guess the holiday, but I'm like, oh, President's Day. It was President's Day on Monday. They mentioned that as well. Who the fuck gets President's Day off? I want President's Day off work. Absolutely nobody, especially not in those type of like big big business firms and shit like that. Yeah, no. I mean, 
when I was working in private legal sector, I was expected to come in basically seven days a week, but that's another story. So anyways, everything's going great. And then guy, so they worked in the same building, but on different floors and for different firms. And before guy had been like, Oh, I've never noticed you. But then guy says, I have a confession to make and I'm, it's eating me up inside. I have actually noticed you before on multiple occasions. He's like, because I can't really help but notice you because blah, 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 how you look. And if he were not hot, this would be creepy, but he is hot. So Jennifer is like, hee, 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 okay. And like flirts back with them, right? Of course. So they're passing the time. And then all of a sudden, like Jennifer is like, what do you want to talk about? And they end up deciding to talk about sex. I don't know how this happens, but it does. The only reason I'm even bringing up this part of the movie is because she's like, let's talk about the craziest places we've ever had sex. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Well, so he is trying to act all like bashful and he's like, I don't really have any stories. And she's like, I'll go first. And so the craziest, wildest place that she's ever had sex. Oh, God. You'll like it. Is in the library. No, I won't like it. Don't (laughs) fucking libraries. We have to hear it and stop you. Is that the... Hard cover fiction section. Okay, I have written that incident report. (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, don't fucking libraries. Please, and don't masturbate outside of them either. I've written that incident report too. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's not really anywhere to go from there, so just keep going. No. So he kind of makes up the story. I'm not going to talk about it. It's dumb. And it comes into play later. I'm not going to talk about that either. So anyways, long story short, they end up kissing and then they end up having sex. Which is, I don't know, I guess it's okay. This elevator, by the way, I'll just point out, is actually quite big. Like, it's not like one of those, like, smaller elevators. Like, there's enough room for them to be laying down. It's like a big corporate New York, probably, like, needs to fit 20 people in it sometimes elevator. Yeah, I've been in giant elevators like that. I know what you mean. Yes. So, then they have sex. I'll point out that this is, it is 30 fucking minutes into this movie, and the scariest thing that's happened so far is small talk. So. Okay, but that's, like, really scary. Yeah, well, it's about to get real scary because after they have sex, Guy turns to Jennifer and is like, that was so amazing. You're amazing. No. I could fall in love with you. No, I knew it was coming. (laughs) And then she's kind of got that look of like, normally, like if you're in a bed, that look of like, oh, I just remembered I'm late for work. I have to go. And that's when like you start, like you get up and you put your clothes on so fast that like half of them are like unbuttoned and backwards and you get the F out of there, but there's nowhere to escape to. So she just goes to the corner of the elevator with that same look on her face. And guy's like, what's wrong? And then <laughs> she basically is like, I can't do this. Like, She's like, I sh- you should know that I was planning on going to visit my ex-fiance after this and was going to try to get things back together and blah, blah, blah. And she's trying to be really chill and cool. And Guy has like zero chill and then starts to cry and sob, saying that <laughs> they're locked in a tiny box together, but it feels like they're a million miles apart. Holy shit. <laughs> This guy's going from zero to sketch like super fucking fast. And I'm sorry. I don't care how hot you are. Do not cry after sex. Or during sex. (laughs) That's the story for the Patreon. Anyways. So. (laughs) 
We keep teasing the Patreon, <laughs> but we don't actually have one. No, not yet. At this point, at least. Okay. I'm going to try to get through the, th- through more of this. So basically, Guy is, like, terrible. It's also, it's weird because there is something about seeing, like, conventionally attractive people, like, having these weird freak-out moments that you're, like, you kind of feel bad for them, but you don't really, which are kind of weirded out. But you're also, like, oh, a vulnerable, attractive person. We should water it and take care of it. You know? If he was ugly, people would be, like, completely disgusted by him. Because she starts to feel a little bit bad, but not for that long. I'm already disgusted, regardless. But you also know how I feel about crying. Yeah. Don't do it. Especially not in front of me. Yeah. So, ultimately, Guy goes from being sad to just, like, being a super toxic fucking dick face. And not taking the rejection well at all, gets super upset and is like, I have some things to tell you too. Pulls out his phone and there's all these pictures of her on his phone. And he's like, I'm not new to the building, like I said, and I don't work on that floor, like I said. I'm a security guard and I've been watching you every single day. I know when you come in. I know when you leave. I know when you take your lunch. I know when you do everything. And... It's weird, but I'll also point out that I did have the thought of, oh, he was like, I work the front desk. I'm not sure that you could see a chisel jaw model like front desk security worker every day at your job and not recognize him. Oh, absolutely not. If there were a chisel, like, okay, I don't work someplace as a front desk security worker, but let's say we got a new security guard at the library if he was super hot, I would be texting my best friend about it like every day. Yeah, I feel like that's everybody. Yeah. And I think I get I think it's supposed to be more believable because the corporate world it's like nobody notices anybody and nobody's important. Everyone's faceless. But even still, like I don't I don't think so. I've worked in I've literally worked in buildings that have had like front desk people and if one of those security guards was super hot, I would fucking notice it. And then if I saw him in a really nice tailored suit, I would also notice that. Yep. I'd be like, aren't you the security guard? Anyways. So then he gets really crazy and he basically talks about how he had planned this whole weekend. And like he had told the he had told both the other security guards on duty that he was going to cover their shift. So it was just him. And he planned the elevator stopping and he actually had a key to start it again. And what it was is she had like looked away for a second and he stopped it and then like acted like it was like a mistake. Oh, boy. Right. So you're obviously dealing with like a huge pile of crazy right here, right? And this is like one of my criticisms of her. Instead of like being cool about things and being like, okay, well, let's just open the elevator and we'll, everything is totally chill. And then like get out and like immediately go to the police about this guy. She's like, fuck you, asshole. I'm going to call the police. You're going to jail. You're going to jail, which is like, why are you poking the fucking beehive? While you're in a trapped steel room with the beehive. Also, you've probably faked an orgasm before, girl. You can fake affection. Yeah, I mean, it's self-preservation. Don't piss off an obviously mentally unstable person while you're trapped inside of a small, small space with them. That's what I'm saying. It's not victim blaming. I'm just saying you could have thought this out a little bit more and controlled your emotions. All right, so Guy does not take this well. Things go kind of crazy. There's like a scuffle. Ultimately, Jennifer ends up sort of like cracking guy on the head and like gets his face cut open and he gets knocked out for like half a second. But in the process, she also breaks the key panel. So she tries to like, like 
she hits him and he like falls against it kind of and like it breaks it. So she can't open the elevator anymore. So that was bad. That's convenient. All right. So I'm going to skip through a bunch of this. Ultimately, guys kind of like, well, they, they sort of figure out that they have to get out of this elevator either way. So they break open one of the ceiling panels and there's like a door and a ladder. And so Guy boosts Jennifer up because she had been like, I promise I won't go to the police. Just like boost me up and then I'll go and do whatever, which is good. That's what you're supposed to do is like lie to him to get out of the situation. And then she gets up and she turns to him and like flips him off because she doesn't think he's going to be able to get up. Well, spoiler alert, he can get up because it's not that high. And he's also got like super powered rage now. And so, like, she's climbing up and, like, trying to get to this door. He's climbing up after her. Ultimately, he pulls her down. They fall through. And, like, they both fall and they crash to the elevator. Then they kind of come to a little bit. She comes to first because she had fell on him. And he ba- she basically makes him, like, give a taped confession on her phone. Side note. The movie never addresses the issue of them not being able to call people. I guess maybe because they're in the underground parking structure. They're, like supposedly don't have signal but it never really says that okay so she makes him give a taped confession on her phone about how like he kidnapped her and blah 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 because her whole thing is she's gonna go to the police about this he also then reveals that he hasn't always been a security guard that the stories that he had told her and the person that he had acted like originally are actually him that he used to work for this big accounting firm but there's more to it but long story the fake sex story that he would told her at first was actually real except that he was having sex with this girl like in his car and he crashed his car and she died. And then he went to jail for it. And basically when he get out with a felony, like nobody would hire him in the corporate world. So he had to be a security guard, which I get the backstory. I get the point of that, but most of those security companies aren't going to hire you with a felony either. So, yeah. So whatever. Anyways. Okay. I'm going to wrap it up in a second. There's this part that honestly I think is only in here because the movie is so uneventful so far. It sounds like it's like all this is happening really quickly. This is literally over like an hour span. No. And so a secu- one of the other security guards comes to the building because he has his girlfriend and he wants to like take her to the roof of the skyscraper so they can like stargaze, which actually is honestly probably something that happens because he has keys there. That's adorable. And so and she's like, what if other people are here? And he's like, oh, it's just my my friend John, the other security guard. So he kind of finds them. Well, John ends up murdering them both because they kind of he kind of like sees what's going on. And guy, guy, John? guy slash John. John, they're the same person. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. His real name is John, but he his fake name was Guy. Oh, okay. I don't. If you, of all the fake names you come up with, why Guy? I know. But so he ends up murdering them. They the other security guard gets murdered in like one of those very typical cliche like trying to climb through the elevator to help them situations. And then John, like, he had thrown John his emergency key, which somehow now does work. And so as he's, like, halfway through the elevator thing, he turns the key and it crushes the guy in half. I don't know. I'm a little bit, to be honest, I'm a little bit tired of, like, elevator deaths done like that. Yeah. Anyways, and then the girlfriend was out in the lobby waiting for him, and he kills her because, I I, I don't know, because he didn't know how to explain anything else. So then he had put... So Jennifer was passed out at this point because he had knocked her out. He puts her in the trunk of his car. And then he, so then he drives off. She's in the trunk. He goes to this alley and he's basically going to burn her alive. 
this is literally like the last scene of the movie. I'm just going to give this whole movie away. I realize that it's 2019, but like, I don't think people give a shit about this. Wait, so they don't die in the elevator? No. So he had dri- drives her to this alley. He's pouring gasoline in this dumpster because he's going to like burn her alive. He opens the trunk and it looks like she's already dead because she's playing dead. She's got like her eyes open and stuff. And he's like, blah, blah, blah. So he turns around for half a second and then she gets out of the trunk and smacks him across the face of the gas can, jumps into the car and then sort of like speeds off, stops the car and is like, wait a second, throws it into reverse and starts to like zoom back towards him. He jumps into the dumpster to avoid getting hit, but she just smashes into the dumpster. She then gets out. She sees him. He's, like, still alive, but, like, very, very hurt in this dumpster that has gasoline in it. Then she takes a cigar out of his car, lights a cigar, takes a puff of it, and flicks it into the dumpster. And then she, like, looks with this very, like, badass look on her face. Like, yeah, I'm so hardened and tough and harrowed from my experience. And gets into the car and drives off. And that's how the movie ends. It's very out of character for how they built her up. All right. My quick final thoughts on this. Is this movie good? No. <laughs> is this movie worth watching? No. I it was okay. I don't it's not first of all, it's not even a Valentine's Day movie. It has nothing to do with Valentine's Day but for these decorations they have in the office and that annoyed me. And I guess like a twist on like the darker side of attraction. I get, yeah, I guess that's true. Now that you say that, I could see that. Like it's kind of about like attraction and like becoming obsessed with somebody. But it was no Pilgrims. I mean, Pilgrims was really enjoyable. I would tell people that they shouldn't watch this. I mean, you do get to see Matt Lauria naked. I guess that's a reason to watch it. How naked? Um, but no dick. Oh. <laughs> you t- it's it, I mean, it was honestly like this is made for I think like like TV or a streaming service. Like you're not going to see full peen. Okay. But if you're watching it, you also have the internet, which means peens are just waiting to jump out on your face. Okay. So I didn't like that. The pacing, the biggest issues, real talk, the pacing was super off in this movie. It's like so little happens in such a long span of time that I actually did like the intro. Like the lead up of the movie I thought was good. The actors are very good. I'll I'll say that. The two main people... um, Guy slash John and Jennifer, they those actors are very good and they have good chemistry together. So their scenes in like the development and the like laying the foundation was good. It was just too long. And then it's not like they did a bad job at the other parts. It's just like it was the writing and the way that the script was done was just like, I don't know. I was waiting for there needs to be more twists and turns in a movie like that. If you're going to have a movie that's literally two people in one little box and the only thing to entertain you is like dialogue There needs to be some fucking, like, crazy, twisty, turny, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself style, like, drama, you know? That's the real tea. You know what I'm saying, though? Like, I want more to happen. And I think they literally only tossed in the other security guard death because they realized how little was happening in this movie. Yeah, it sounds very lame. So there's that. The other other positive note, they do dish they do deal with a lot of issues of like consent throughout the movie because there is this whole scene where they're getting mad where it's like they had sex and she's basically like you tricked me and he's like I there's kind of this like I didn't force you and she's like it doesn't matter you tricked me it's the same thing like that kind of a thing. So I guess like that's a good little message in it. 
but I mean, he was hot. So I'm not going to say anything inappropriate that I'm going to put in the podcast. (laughs) So anyways, long story short, it's a very strong meh for me. Good acting, very hot stalker guy, very mediocre film. I would say watch it at your own risk, but probably don't watch it. If you're going to watch a Valentine's Day movie today or tomorrow for for actual Valentine's Day, just go with My Bloody Valentine. That movie will not disappoint, I promise. So enough about My Valentine's Day horror. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right. So I'm actually super excited for this episode. Like you have no idea. So since Valentine's Day is tomorrow, I thought... I definitely needed to do a love story. And believe it or not, it's not between siblings, nor is it between an adult and a child. Well, not in the main storyline anyway. God, I can't believe I read this shit. I mean. (laughs) Okay, never mind. I was going to say love is love, but like, no, I'm not saying that. (laughs) Curse Be the Child, episode one. Oof, oof. It was incest and pedophilia all in one. Well, it's just kind of a theme, right? I f- it seems kind of like people, I don't know. It just kind of seems like people are like, what's really horrifying? Incest, pedophilia, whatever. I'm just going to throw this in my book. Like, yeah. why, why not just make things scary to be scary? Well, this one does that. Yay. Anyway, this week I am doing the 1996 splatterpunk classic Exquisite Corpse by New Orleans' own Poppy Z. Bright. So, quick side note before we jump in, Poppy Z. Bright's books are still published under that pseudonym, and the older editions still use she, her, hers pronouns, but in 2011, he publicly stated that he uses he, him, his pronouns, so that's what we're going to do here. Trans men are men, trans women are women, non-binary folks are valid, use the pronouns people tell you to, respect and kindness don't cost you a thing, the end, full stop. Yeah. I mean, my thing is like... Why not just, I don't know, like, why not just not be an asshole to people? Like, if somebody wants to be called something, like, it doesn't cost you anything, so why not just do it? Like, it doesn't matter. I I don't know. I get so upset with that, but I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to rant about it. I will say that I do like Poppy Z. Bright in theory. I have not read Exquisite Corpse nor read any of his books, but Poppy Z. Bright was very big and people may even know a lot more about him than I do. But Poppy Z. Bright was very big when I first moved down to New Orleans in the long, long, long ago in 1999. Three years after this book was published. <laughs> yeah. So, which I guess makes sense. Because back then in the late 90s, the big goth craze of which I was very into was Anne Rice and the Interview with the Vampire. And so that's obviously not why I moved to New Orleans, but it was a big perk of being down here. But it was becoming so mainstream that in the like really cool like underground alternative goth community, it was cooler to be into Poppy Z. Bright than Anne Rice. Yeah, and which makes sense because Poppy Z. Bright is considered one of the founding authors of the splatterpunk movement. And it, whereas Anne Rice's books, because I have listened to the audiobooks or read almost everything that Anne Rice has written. Anne Rice's books tend to be very, like, like they're very, like, lush and sexual and extravagant, whereas, like, Poppy Z. Bright's stuff is very gritty and very violent and very dark. Yeah, I, she's more, by she, I mean Anne Rice. Anne Rice is more of the, like, romantic goth, and then Poppy Z. Bright seems to be more of the gritty, grungy side like of punk things. punk goth, yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, the cover of this book is whatever. It was designed by Evan Gaffney using a photo called The Lifeline by Blake Little. It is really just like a hand outstretched on a bed sheet. Yeah, I see. It's whatever. It's purple. It's fine. Let's take a look at the blurb. To serial killer Andrew Compton, murder is an art. The most intimate art. After feigning his own death to escape from prison, Compton makes his way to the United States with the ambition of bringing his art to new heights. Tortured by his own perverse desires, drawn to possess and destroy young boys, Compton inadvertently joins forces with Jay Byrne, a dissolute playboy who has pushed his art to limits that even Compton hadn't previously imagined. Together, Compton and Byrne set their sights on an exquisite young Vietnamese-American runaway, Tran, whom they deem to be the perfect victim. Okay. I like serial killer stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't... I should say... I should preface this because I'm sure a lot of people are super into it. I'm not like one of those people who, like, stands serial killers. Like, I don't find... I've talked to you about this many times. I don't find them attractive. I don't find them, like, alluring. I just find it interesting in more of, like, a macabre sense of the... Sense of feeling. I don't know how to say that. But I think people get what I'm trying to say. I don't think they're cool. I don't think serial killers are cool at all. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Another quick note because I've got a lot of them in this one. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give everyone a content warning. Uh, By nature, Splatterpunk is very violent, and it's very graphic. But, fun fact, Poppy Z. Bright was actually dropped from his then-publishing deals both in the United States and the UK because Exquisite Corpse was deemed too intensely violent and, quote, too nihilistic. Actually, I think the quote is too pointlessly nihilistic. So we're talking gore, we're talking sexual assault, we're talking frank descriptions of the late stages of HIV infections, and the weaponization of HIV. Uh, It's fucking gnarly, but at the same time, it's really well done, so if that's the sort of thing that you can handle, then it's totally worth reading. Also, before I jump in, I want to talk slightly about the difference that I see between torture porn and splatterpunk. Okay. Because I think they're two different things. I've said in the past that I don't like torture porn, but here I am getting really excited to tell you about a book that was so graphic that the author struggled to get it published. To me, splatterpunk is horror where the violence is graphic, and torture porn is horror where the violence is the point. I feel like splatterpunk uses explicit violence to enhance the plot, but that's just my opinion. Sure. So our story opens with Andrew Compton. He is an HIV-positive serial killer who is in prison in England. He is known as the Eternal Host. He preys on boys and young men, killing them and then living with their corpses until they reach a point of decay where he has to trade in for a new model. Interesting. Uh, But he was obviously eventually caught and arrested. So Compton is getting really twitchy because he hasn't killed in so long. So what's a serial killer to do? One of his favorite hobbies is meditation. And when he meditates, he focuses on slowing down his breathing and his heart rate in order to get as close to death as possible because he likes how it feels. Sure, who doesn't? Goth icon. (laughs) Uh, He decides to see just how far he can push it, and he ends up imitating death so thoroughly that the prison that he is in decides that he has died of HIV-related complications. 
But also keep in mind here that this is back in the 90s when knowledge of HIV and its transmission was still relatively mysterious. So no one was really comfortable inspecting him thoroughly. Okay. So he's in this, like, trance. Um, also, before I continue here, again, another side note. I'm so sorry. Gentle listener, if you do choose to read this book, know that it is filled with misconceptions about HIV and AIDS that are mostly a product of their time and are exaggerated to add to kind of like the gritty horror of the story. So if you do choose to read this and you don't consider yourself super educated regarding HIV awareness, I highly encourage you to balance it out by doing a little bit of research. Um, Pause.com and thebody.com are both really good resources full of reliable doctor-recommended information. Know your status in the stigma and undetectable equals untransmittable. The end. Yeah. I mean, we're not a health podcast, but I will say that it is fascinating to me how in this day and age, there's still a lot of people who don't necessarily understand that. And I'll point that out that I have explained that to many of my friends who... Oh, well, I, I say my friends, a lot of like my friends in the gaming community, many of whom just happen to be straight. And I don't think the education is as prevalent in that community because they were like flabbergasted when I told them that there was medication that basically made you unable to transmit HIV. Like they like could not believe it. The uh, that's honestly why I say it. I will as much as it was just like yet another rant in this episode full of rants from me. There is so little education honestly there's not enough education in the queer community but there's so little outside of the queer community that i feel like a book with such an outdated view of hiv could cause harm if people don't know just how inaccurate it is so i just felt like it was my responsibility to be like hey this is really inaccurate if you're curious here's where to go i'm a librarian i can't help it that makes sense. It's very informative. We're being informative. Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> Let's get back to jokes. So, well, there's no jokes in this story. <laughs> there's literally no jokes here. <laughs> Buckle up. So Compton wakes up from his trance right as his autopsy is about to begin. Oh, there is a joke. Oh, my God. There's a joke at the end of this paragraph. Oh, so excited. He kills both of the doctors and makes his escape. So he's taken one of the doctor's clothes and he goes and he seduces somebody and then kills him during sex in a bathroom stall, taking his money and his ID. He uses the money to buy new clothes and a plane ticket and heads for the airport. Well, not in that order. Buys new clothes, goes to the airport, uses the money to buy a plane ticket. And you might be wondering, how is he flying with someone else's ID? Well, that's because, like most basic white gays, his victim was easily seduced because they looked almost exactly alike. (laughs) So let's hop across the pond and we can set the stage for Compton's arrival. We've got three main characters here. I'm just going to roll through some information about them. And also like information for our gentle listeners about New Orleans for context real quick. And then we'll get back to the story. Mm -hmm. So we have Tran. Tran is the way too Pollyanna to be a drug dealer, acid dealing twink who hangs out in the quarter all the time. He lives out in the East, which makes sense. For our gentle listeners who do not know this area, East New Orleans is basically its own, almost like its own town. Like you have to drive down the interstate to get there. And it has a massive Vietnamese American population, which is why you can get bomb ass Vietnamese food here. Also, because it's relevant to the story where the looming specter of HIV is basically a character in and of itself, Tran is HIV negative. 
We also have Luke. Luke is trans X. He is a locally famous author, and he is also the speaker on an illegal radical queer radio show called WHIV. He uses the pseudonym Lush Rimbod. <laughs> okay. Love it. Uh, he lives in what is described as a really skeevy motel out on Airline Highway. And I swear to God, it's the London Lodge. It kind of does sound like that. So, gentle listener, again, for those of you who don't know this area very well, the London Lodge is this horrifying motel, and it's, like, out on the edge of town just before you hit the suburbs. It's super sketchy, and I'm obsessed with it. I don't know why. I literally point it out to Max every single time we drive past it. I literally just go, oh, the London Lodge. It has a very recognizable sign. It's also used in um, the series Preacher. Yeah. There's really just a part of me that wants one of the front desk workers there to write a memoir of all the crazy stuff they've seen because you know it gets wild there. Uh, Again, for the sake of the importance to the story, Luke is HIV positive. He's actually where we get a lot of our descriptions of the illness from. He is wasting and has developed a thrush. And he exists in this story basically constantly aware that he is one opportunistic infection away from dying. And it adds an extra layer of urgency to his chapters because it switches points of view that I thought was really well done and really well paced. And last on my list of characters is Jay Byrne. Jay is the son of a wealthy uptown family, but he lives in a townhouse in the quarter on his own. Jay likes to take pictures of young men. He lets the locals go, but we learn pretty early on that he kills the ones who are just passing through. He also cannibalizes his victims, and he has turned the outbuilding behind his property into a giant cooler. I don't know how common outbuildings are outside of New Orleans, so just like quick context for that. It's like a shed-like structure. It's at the back of the property. Usually its back wall serves as part of the fencing. It often is just like a rectangular shape, has a sloping roof. In times before emancipation... They served as slave quarters, but after they served as, like, bachelor's quarters for the son of the family to live in during his wild early 20s before he settled down and moved back into the main house. They're really common here on, like, the big old properties. And Jay is HIV negative. So, back to our story. Before Compton arrives, we have a scene where Tran's father finds letters that Tran had received from Luke. And they're real intense is a way to put it. What's really awkward is when his dad starts reading them out loud, including when Luke calls Tran my intestinal maze. Ew. Tran's a bottom. Ew. That's not cute at all, actually. No, that's not sexy. Don't call your bottom (laughs) your intestinal maze. (laughs) There's also pretty direct references to intravenous drug use, which Tran internally acknowledges that they did, though he... Like, thinks to himself, they were always super careful. We learned towards the end of their relationship that Luke tested positive for HIV and Tran tested negative, and then something happened to break them up. It's a mystery. Uh, Tran tells his father he's leaving. He's not kicked out, per se, but it seems like Tran is trying to kind of leave on his own terms as opposed to being kicked out. So he makes his way to the quarter and to Jay's house. And all he really knows about Jay is that Jay is handsome and likes to photograph young guys. And that Jay has, in fact, offered to photograph him several times. So Trina's like, I'm going to use my secret weapon, 
my sexuality so that I can have a place to stay, which I make jokes about, but it's actually really sad. A lot of gay teens who are thrown out of their houses resort to doing that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tran is in his early 20s, though. I say teens to shine light on that sad fact. But Tran is not a minor. Like I said, our main plot line does not include pedophilia. And Jay is like, uh, sure. Just come back in an hour. And you might be thinking to yourself, why does Jay need an hour? Does he need to take a shower? Does he need to clean up his kitchen? No, that would be because he has the corpse of a young transient man in his house who is who Jay has tied up. He scrubbed him with steel wool and washed him with bleach, disemboweled him, and killed him. So Jay needs to carve him up and storm in the outbuilding. I mean, if you can do that in an hour, you're pretty talented. He's had a lot of practice. Uh, the outbuilding has been outfitted to basically be like a giant walk-in cooler for people who have worked in food service. So he can go cry when he's had a rough day. Oh my God. I have cried (laughs) in so many walk-in coolers. (laughs) Really just three because I've only worked in three restaurants, but so much crying time in each one. Anyway, once Tran gets there, things get pretty hot and heavy, pretty fast. And Jay internally is like, I can't fuck you because if I fuck you, I'll have to kill you. So, yeah. Uh, also, amidst their passion, Luke's radio show comes on and Tran gets up. He's like sitting in Jay's lap or something, turns off the radio, then curls up in a ball on the floor and starts screaming about how fucked up his life is. Oh, God, gross. God, if a hookup ever did that, that would just be the end. Well, the best part here is that Jay, Jay, the man who kills and eats people for fun is like, this kid is cute, but he might be a little too crazy to stick my dick in. <laughs> yeah, you should not stick your dick in crazy. It just doesn't end well. Uh, and like, that's when you know that you might, it might be time to start getting over your ex. When this serial killer is like, oh my God, this kid's crazy. <laughs> then Tran reveals that the reason he and Luke broke up is because he woke up from a heroin fueled haze to find Luke prepping his arm to inject him with his blood. Ugh. Um, because Luke basically didn't want Tran to leave him and thought that if he infected Tran with HIV, he wouldn't leave. Then Tran says that he kept the syringe at s- some sort of like token. He's like, I still have it. Mm. And Jay is like, there's no way I'm fucking you, but (laughs) you can sleep here tonight because you have nowhere else to go. Just be gone in the morning. So Tran does. He even gets up in the middle of the night for a snack. Spoiler alert. It was not lunch meat that was in the fridge. Man, what can you do? It was really heavy handed and didn't really serve too much of a purpose, but it was enjoyable nonetheless. (laughs) So shortly after this, Jay and Compton meet in a bar. And they can see the serial killer in each other. And it is love at first sight. So they go back to Jay's and Jay decides to test Compton. He cuffs his foot to a table, brings in a corpse, and then drops the key to the handcuffs in the corpse's mouth and makes Compton dig it out. I mean, I could pass that test. I'm no serial killer. Uh, Again, folks, if you get queasy, it just gets worse from here. So once Compton frees himself, Jay takes him out to the outbuilding where he shows Compton the joys of eating corpses, and Compton shows Jay the joys of fucking corpses. And they spend the evening eating and fucking corpses. The look on your face is so good right now. But they're cold. 
That's the best part. I don't think so. No, it's not. Um, I'm not sure it's the worst part either, though. But Compton is totally like, it's really gross. Compton's mindset the whole time is like, they can't leave you if you're dead. <laughs> well, or if they're dead. That's true. Technically. But sometimes you want them to leave. Sometimes you do. Sometimes they just don't leave fast enough. Anyway. So they go out to a bar for a nightcap after just veritably glowing from their night of love and corpse passion. And they briefly run into Tran. And Compton is like, he's perfect. And Jay is like, no, he's a local. So they pick up another transient kid instead. And when they cut him open, his insides are spotted and clearly riddled with some sort of disease. So they decide to just have sex with each other. Boo. <laughs> Consolation prize. Wah, wah. There is a scene in that where Jay tells Compton to take off his condom. And it is one of two scenes of HIV transmission in this book that are written like really heavily to be clear that it's like part of the horror. Mm. HIV and AIDS are constantly looming over the story of this book. All of the characters are preoccupied with it, and that makes sense. It was the mid-90s. People were dying in droves. Nowadays, HIV is treated and controlled like a chronic illness, which isn't to say that people shouldn't be careful or anything like that, but it isn't the death sentence it used to be. So it was really interesting to read something. I mean, I was six when this book came out. So it was really interesting to read something set in a time that I'm glad I never experienced, but that I never experienced. Things get darker than dark here. So they invite Tran over because Jay decides that he wants to provide his new boyfriend with the perfect victim. And they're just going to make the fact that he's local work. So they're all hanging out and they're drinking and they're making out and whatnot. And Compton and Jay drug Tran and then proceed to have some pretty intense foreplay, including non-consensually forcing Tran to swallow Compton's semen, which because it was in the 90s was treated as if that was going to be like a transmission scene. Fun fact, unless you have lacerations in your mouth, that wouldn't actually be the case. Between the drugs and the choking, Tran is unconscious. Gentle listener, if you're squeamish, this is the worst part of this episode. Cut forward about 30 seconds. So Jay goes to a side table and Compton is like, seriously, some basic ass dildo after all the other shit that we've done. But Jay pulls out a large Phillips head screwdriver, places the end of it right at Tran's asshole, and then slams it with the heel of his hand and proceeds to fuck him with the point of a Phillips head screwdriver. Which wakes Tran up really quickly. At least screwdrivers are small though, right? A big Phillips head screwdriver is, like, closing in on a dime's worth diameter. Like, it's described as, like, a very large Phillips head screwdriver. And those are the ones that have the pointy ends. Yeah, I know that. So Tran flees and Jay follows. I haven't talked much about Luke here because although his story is very important for kind of the conversation surrounding HIV and AIDS in the 90s, it's not super important to the central plot until this point. All you really need to know is that Luke heard that Tran is staying at Jay's and decide he's going to go win him back. Which I don't think there's any coming back from, I wanted to infect you with a deadly disease so you wouldn't leave me, but it's the thought that counts. Along the way, he comes across a crowd in the quarter, which includes a naked and bleeding Tran, two cops, and Jay, convincing the cops that Tran is his boyfriend, paying no mind to the fact that he's bleeding profusely. 
Luke runs up begging the cops to either leave Tran with him or just take him into custody themselves, like anything to save him from Jay. But they let Jay have him. First of all, because you've got, on the one hand, clean-cut, clearly wealthy Jay versus Luke, who is manic and also in the 90s, clearly wasting from an HIV infection. But also, Jay is bribing the cops. And to our listeners, you might be thinking, how could that happen? But let me tell you, the New Orleans police being corrupt was the least shocking part of this book to me. Well, yeah. So Jay takes him back to the house. Luke follows, but he's struggling to get in because Jay has, like, spikes across the top of his fence line. He ends up having to, like, climb over the top of the outbuilding. People do that here, though. Do what? Have spikes on their fences or broken glass, to be honest. Like, that's a real thing. Because New Orleans is wild. Yeah. And meanwhile, Jay and Compton have a barely responsive tran in the outbuilding out back. Compton is fucking Tran while Jay is torturing him. And our other HIV transmission scene happens simultaneously with Jay cutting out Tran's organs and killing him. It's the hardest scene to read in the book because you don't realize how much you're hoping that Tran will somehow be okay until he's not. And it's this very like crushing like, oh. Like like you get why the publishers were like, this is dark. Yeah. Yeah. This is dark, Poppy. We can't do this. Right after this, Luke gets in. There's a fight. Luke kills Jay. He's in a super state of shock, and Compton just decides to, like, leave him. I don't really know why. He cuts some meat out of Jay, fries it up in a skillet in the kitchen, makes a sandwich, and then heads to the Amtrak station where he heads out west while munching on the dead love of his life, the end. Oh, nothing happens to him? No. Like, literally, the final scene, there's, like, an epilogue where he's in this haze of, like, alcohol and drugs and still thinking about Jay. But that's it. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically it. Jay is dead. Tran is dead. Compton is heading off to kill more people while eating a sandwich made of Jay. It's not the happiest story, but... Yeah, and you assume that Luke will probably die soon because he's clearly very sick. Right. It's dark. It's it's dark. At least he gets to feel Jay inside him one last time. That's literally what he thinks. He even <laughs> con- he even contemplates going back into that meditative state because it will slow his digestion and keep Jay inside of him longer. <laughs> I'm it's, not joking. It's true love. The truest love is between serial killers. Okay, so I'm going to give this four out of five, I really don't know, keys in a corpse's mouth. Usually I try to make it funny, like I try to make a joke with my ratings, but so much of this book is so fucked up that I can't really joke about it, at least not in a medium where my coworkers will hear. The thing is, this book is gruesome and it's gnarly, but it's super well written. It's really well paced and you really end up caring about whether Tran lives or dies, which considering the fact that Tran is extremely annoying, I think is very impressive. It's really good and it makes you like it and then it makes you feel dirty for liking it. I just, it was good. If you can handle gore, I highly recommend this one. I'm not going to lie. Probably the only reason I didn't give it five out of five is because it's so fucked up that I feel weird enjoying it that much. Hmm. Sounds good. I always find it fun to to read and watch things that are set in New Orleans, too, for some reason. 
Yeah, and this had... This was clearly written by a local for a local audience. Like, I've read stuff set in New Orleans written for a national audience, and it doesn't have the details. Like, they would never hint at the London Lodge. There would never be the background of New Orleans East. Like... Sure. It was really cool reading it. And by no means would I consider myself a New Orleanian. I've only lived here for five and a half years. But still, I have lived here five and a half years. So it was interesting reading something that had stuff in there that I recognized. Sure. So so if you were in Exquisite Corpse, would you be killed and eaten? The best answer for that is pretending that I am trans age. Because the thing is, I was a very, very, very late bloomer. I didn't have much facial hair to speak of until close to my mid-20s. And I didn't really develop any sort of like muscle or more like masculine adult feature, physical features like chest hair or things like that until my mid to late 20s. So I would have been the perfect ideal target because they seem to kind of go after that like super twinky ideal. Mm -hmm. And if you combine that with the fact that I was not always smart with my intimate choices when I was young, sad, and desperately seeking validation in the arms of other men... I probably would have fallen for it. So, yes, I would have died. Would you die in down? Obviously not. One, I am... (laughs) Well, well, now I'm trying to think. So, to answer this question, I could say, like, me as just a person, no. Because I don't work in any of that settings. I am so over corporate America that I would just not put myself in that position. But let's say that I was a lawyer. I mean, I am a lawyer. Let's say that I was a lawyer working in that type of building and then someone was stalking with me. Also, no, because I would be smart enough to be totally like playing, like I've said, like play up to that person and be like, yeah, we're totally going to get married and have a life together. Let's just get out of this elevator and like, we're going to run off into the sunset. And then when you're out of the elevator, that's when you fucking go to the cops. Yeah. Like her mistake, she doesn't die. The only, I mean, the only people that die really are the bad guy and than the security guard but like the biggest mistake is and what sets everything off not to victim blame is that she doesn't do that she pisses somebody off when they're trapped in an elevator together don't do that no just don't don't even talk to people in elevators as a matter of fact don't talk to me in an elevator i hate it when people do that oh my god yeah just look forward and then like get to your floor and leave it's like peeing at a urinal don't talk look forward and leave when you're done. Well, in today's age, don't even ride the elevator with me. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Actually, court ha- court actually has a policy of only one person to an elevator, but people just don't care about it. That doesn't shock me. Anyways, so the answer is no on multiple levels. I would not be killed in if I were a character in, in uh, Down. Oh, boy. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us if you want to have a chit-chat about anything or you have questions or comments. Well, I mean, you can comment on our actual post if you want, but you can also email us, and that would be at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.